What is a sting? A sting is, uh, like, so the sting for this podcast is you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether you might be able to translate that into German for me and then say it. No. Would you say it in English? Yes. Great. You're listening to the what? <laughs> That's good. This has been a special moment. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good uh, Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Broadcast. No. You're listening to the... (laughs) Shh. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Hello. It's summertime, which means it's the BBC Proms, and for the first time in a long time, at least as long as I can remember, artists this year are making themselves more available for interviews in the run-up to their Proms appearance. That's good news for people like me. Pianist Nicholas Hodges is one of those artists and features in podcast number 48. Nicholas appears with the BBC Symphony Orchestra on Sunday the 28th of July in a performance of Messias des Canyons aux Etoiles. That's very difficult to say convincingly, but I have sought advice on pronunciation and have been practising it quite a lot. Nicholas and I met up in the Queen Elizabeth Hall foyer in London on the day before the hottest day in the UK ever, the 24th of July. We discussed the different ways birdsong sounds across the world, how eight weeks when Nicholas was a teenager made contemporary music inescapable, And he revealed what happens for him in the moment between the sounding of the final note of a piece of music and the beginning of the applause. You'll already be aware that he's not as good at reading out podcast announcements as I had originally hoped. Tell me why you're in London, please, sir. I'm in London to play in the proms, sir. Um, On Sunday, I'm playing Messiaen des Cagnons aux Etoiles with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Sacri Oramo, which is going to be a huge amount of fun. And um, what is fun about it? What's fun about it? Well, oh, I mean, it's going to be. What hot, isn't fun about isn't it? it? Come it's on! Oh, I don't hot. care about that. You don't care about the heat. You don't no, care no, about no. the heat. No. Uh, you're here tomorrow, though, aren't you? In London. Yeah. It's going to be 38 tomorrow. Yeah, but sure it's been 38 for the whole last month at home. Oh, has it? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're acclimatized. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, I'm acclimatized. It's okay. It's no, okay. So, uh, what um, is fun about the piece? Okay. Well, the, the piece is amazing. It's so just to go back to basics. It's an American commission from the 70s. And because it was an American commission uh, for, I think, the 200th anniversary of independence, maybe, mm-hmm. um, uh, Messiaen went to 
Utah to go and listen to birds and look at landscapes and things like that and uh, notated lots of American birds. And what's really interesting about this is that it means that the repertoire of birdsong in the piece is not the same as in his other bird music. Um, you know, when you travel a lot, as musicians like me are lucky enough to do, um, you notice that really a lot. I remember that when I landed in Australia, being the first thing that struck me was not anything about landscape or people, but just birdsong. The birdsong there sounds completely different, has a different texture, different harmony. And it's the same in areas of the States. Um, so, so it's full of American birdsong. And of course, it's full of religious imagery as well to do with um, the landscape. And it's full of colors. Uh, being 12 movements long, it's got a lot of ground to cover. And he does that with two solos for piano. Uh, two, 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 solos. two movements which are entirely solo. Um, and one, solo with one movement which is entirely solo horn which was originally written in memoriam and a composer, a young composer who died, a student of his. Um, and he built the piece kind of around that in a way. So it starts also, the, the whole cycle starts with a, with a horn solo phrase. And um, the horn is an important instrument all the way through. And why is it fun? Well, it's so well written for the instrument, for the piano, and it's great music in, 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 in total. And the BBC Symphony plays Messiaen really well. They played, I think it's one of those, it's an orchestra that's probably played Messiaen most over the last 50 years, I would have thought, in a way, apart from the French orchestras, because having had Boulez as the chef and having always been responsible for contemporary music and Messiaen having always had a very high reputation in the UK, much higher than in Germany, for example, um, I think they've probably played a lot. And of course, Messiaen works very well in the Albert Hall because of the colours and the, the blending of colours, the, this, this atmosphere of music that should be played in a church. It's a bit <laughs> suits the acoustic. Uh, what, <laughs> why the difference uh, in appreciation in Germany versus the UK? I, I have no idea, actually, that. but, I, but I, think, I think Germany was always just very proud of its own music, whereas England has always... Not <laughs> been not had quite so much to be proud of. So well, I know it's got plenty um, to be proud of, especially uh, nowadays. Now, I mean, yes. it's, yeah, nowadays. But and and when Purcell was alive, and you know, a few other times. But um, <laughs> no, I just mean I think England has always looked to looked in some. You know, I mean, like why do we drink more French wine than the French as well? Because I mean, because it's better. Yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the same reason? Is that what we're saying? I'm sure that's. We're going to go back saying. to cooking. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's not what we're saying. Um, uh, is it epic? I've listened to it. I mean, it's, essentially, it's a work for instrumental, uh, for soloists. Yeah. A whole group of soloists. So it's not piano and orchestra, but you are billed as a soloist. I've, no, I mean, I'm just posing the question. <laughs> okay. Slightly alarming face. <laughs> no, 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 no. The, 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 the solo, the, the key percussion instruments are very, very important. And there are lots of passages where we play together right. as, a, as a group, as a kind of concertante group. Um, I mean, it's the same thing with the horn. It's not a horn concerto. On the other hand, one the central movement of the piece is the horn solo, so it, it, it's it's very much genre bending in a certain way. Right. Okay. I mean, I feel a little bit like you're one of one of only a handful of contributors who immediately got on the defensive very early on. No, it's okay. It's okay. That's a good. It's a good start. But I'm not I on the just, defensive. But well. I had uh, I had seen it described as scored for a group of soloists. Yeah, I've also seen it described just as an orchestral piece. Right. So, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, when you've got, I've got, I think I play on stage, the two, the, the two movements that are solo are in total about 17 or 18 minutes long. So that means 18 minutes of the piece I'm playing entirely on my own. And that's without all the solo passages in the other movements. So there's a lot of stuff where I'm just totally on my own. Right. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of material where a lot of music 
particularly in the big kind of bumptious ending movements, of which there are three, um, where I'm playing as part of a big, big group, you know, and we're all just happily clapping away to, to praising God and things like that um, as, a, as a group. And then being a soloist is not really appropriate in that, in that situation. So, I mean, in a way, it's, it's certainly different from the other pieces for piano and orchestra by him, of which there are, of course, bazillions. Um, Tarangalila, there's, 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 no, there's no other piece with the solo movement because only Tarangalila is the m only other multi-movement piece. Uh, no, Set Haikai is multi-movement, but that doesn't have a solo movement either. So I mean, encyclopedic knowledge. I mean, like, yeah, the reason well, it's my job, isn't it? Yeah, the reason I'm not interjecting <laughs> with you is because I don't know it quite so well as you do. Yeah. That's why I probably won't say quite so much. Uh, am I right in thinking that he wrote it for his wife, Yvonne? Yes, he wrote it for his wife, Yvonne. And, and I mean, as he did basically all his piano music from, from the mid-50s onwards. I think the last piece he kind of wrote for himself was the four, four etudes, uh, the four, what's it called? Quatre um, etudes de rythme, um, four rhythmic studies, um, which he made a 78 recording of. Do you notice a difference in the style of writing between the two? In well, you know, was he question, writing for is. her, or was he, and, and if he was writing for her, was he writing to challenge her? That's my assumption about composers, that they want to really sort of prod and poke and push well I, I would love I would love to have talked to, to Loriot about that I never met her um, because Varregar for example is, is obviously written for a virtuoso and she was obviously a virtuoso already um, at that time uh, so in the, in the late 40s and mid 40s um, and it's written for a very traditional kind of virtuoso Varregar I mean it's apart from being huge it's very Listian for example it's got a lot of French music a lot of Listian gesture and a lot of it's a mixture of things. It's very much Listy a... and gesture. What do you mean? Well, I mean, big, splashy, okay. arpeggio-y chords, runs, the, the virtuoso piano sound of the 19th century virtuoso, okay. virtuoso feeling. Yeah. Um, it's got other things in it as well, but it, but it does touch on, on traditional virtuosic writing more than any other piece of Messiaen. This is, this is Varigar, the solo cycle we're talking about. Um, but after that, with the bird song, with the Cantio Jaya and the bird song pieces... It's a completely different kind of thing, and I think that's, that's partly, I'm guessing here, but I, can, I, I imagine that there was a two-way street going on here because he would have wanted to do what he wanted to do, but then he would have, I know that he criticised her playing of the Réveil des Oiseaux, the first bird piece, um, and I'm sure that between the two of them, they will have, she, he will have understood how she could best do it, and she, she will have understood what he really wanted. Um, so, so when you say he criticised, do you mean in, in the spirit of... Positive criticism? Uh, probably um, not. No. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think it was. There's a in the biography of Messiaen, the official biography. There's a story about how um, they were rehearsing together, Ravi des Oiseaux, before the premiere, and and he was he expressed his total dissatisfaction with how she was playing the birdsong music, and it's all birdsong music. And then she <laughs> it's went a bit of a downer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And she went to go and listen to bird songs, basically, right. um, and um, and found the key. And the key is it's a it's an interesting area because the key is to do with phrasing, I think, and and how time works for birds uh, in bird song. It's the same. It's a similar problem with mechanical music that when a, when a machine slows down, it slows down in a different way from music. So when when, for example, talking about bird whistle, who who we were talking about earlier. Um, uh, when Bert Whistle writes a machine piece like, a, like in Harrison's Clocks which slows down it can't slow down in a traditional Ritardando kind of a way it has to slow down in an unmusical kind mm -hmm. of mechanical way 
And this is again a kind of passage of time which is not a normal musical passage of time. It's the same with birdsong that you can't, you don't phrase birdsong the same way you phrase a, an aria in an opera. You know, it 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 has a completely different kind of phrasing. I'm drawing on the table how, <laughs> That's how it, for me. How it <laughs> very quickly dies dies off at the end. Um, and yeah, so so birdsong really how you play birdsong is a is a, um, it's a very interesting. Area. And it is strictly notated then. Yeah, totally strictly notated. So if I looked at the manuscript, I would see just a normal stave of music yeah. and, and no other instructions. So you're no. having to interpret what is written and then no, and then no, no, no. It's translated. It's, it's, no, you just map. have to play what it says. Actually, <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I can show you if you want. It's down uh, there. Yes, but uh, well, maybe later. Yeah, um, I mean, it's an interesting question because a lot of people don't play what it says. Right. Um, Loriot played pretty close to what it says, um, but there are some people, and I, I'm yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's it's a no. I mean, it's a, let me let me talk about let me let me not talk about colleagues, but let me talk about students. That with students, one of the things that I have to work very hard on with Messiaen is the rests, because Messiaen always put very very specific rests in. Um, the durations are there are sometimes bars like in in De Cagnon, There's a, there's a movement that has several times a bar's rest at a speed which is not the same speed as what you were just playing before, and not the same speed you'll be playing the bar after. <laughs> And yeah, and what generally happens is people go, and and they and they put in a gap, which is the gap that they need, and then they carry on to the next thing. Yeah, a bit of a miracle. Yeah, and but sometimes there are places where you've really got a lot of time that you have to wait, and people are impatient because they're excited and having fun and all that kind of thing. And presumably relieved. I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds terrifying. Yeah, no, 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 it's not terrifying. It's it's fun. It's pure fun. But I think I think. It's just very easy to forget because you're 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 working so hard on on you know being precisely in different tempo in each phrase and things like that and all these fingerings you have to worry about and all these weird chords and things like that that when you when you're not moving you're not worrying about precision in the same way you know people have to people have to 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 be reminded that you have to precisely not do things as well as precisely do things. So did he document how to go about playing it? I mean, I realise it's in the score. Said, but were, were there were there teachers' notes? Were there were they was there guidance? Well, the, the guidance all came from Loriot, I think. That um, she she taught so many people and she influenced so many people through her recordings that there is a there is a tradition that's come out of that. On the other hand, it's a tradition that was a very very quickly made flexible because there are some Yvonne Loriot students who play really grey and boring, and there are some Yvonne Loriot students like Roger Mourajo, who play with a huge uh, fantasy and colour, maybe very, very, um, maybe too much fantasy sometimes, very free, but, 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 but really wonderful, wonderful musicality. And, um, and yet the two people, the first one I didn't name, the two <laughs> yeah. people are, are, um, are both L'Oreal students. So I don't think it's, it's not like they all play the same. Um, but, uh, so the music that we hear then is not only his, what he has captured, and written down, which in itself strikes me as a bit of a, a bit of a triumph that you can hear something in nature and then transcribe it into manuscript. That to me is yeah. an amazing thing. But it's also a reflection of her interpretation. Yeah, that's yeah. what we understand. Yeah, it. yeah. I mean, it's clearly you know, in in, in end effect, it's it's clearly um, written written for her. And by by this point in Messiaen's career in the 70s, he knew exactly what she would do with the material that he wrote for her. And she understood very, very well what was expected of her. So I think, you know, 
by this point there's a fusion between in, intention and realization a fusion of intention and realization between the, the two of them uh, you speak with great enthusiasm about Messiaen yeah I love his music I love his music it's been it's been a bit of a kind of uphill struggle for me in a way because I, I heard so much of it as a kid I was a choir boy and um, in a cathedral and, and so there was organ music all the time and I got to know the organ music partic particularly La Nativité very very well because at Christmas the organists everywhere that I was ever a choir boy always wanted to play movements of it at the end of the services and not always the last movement which is Dieu parmi nous which is, which is very virtuosic but also other movements of that cycle and um, I found it all very sweet sometimes uh, and later as I got more into more extreme areas of new music uh, one could say um, I found Messiaen I found Messiaen a bit too much and um, unnecessary in my life at that time certainly so for example I would I, I put a ban I told my agent I would never play Tarangalila please say no to Tarangalila if anyone ever asks and I would never play Varregar please say no to that um, and I was always open to do later stuff but it didn't happen really until now. And, what was um, it about Tarangalila? Well, Tarangalila, it's just so, you know, this thing about the music of the whorehouse that Boulez said, I can understand what he means. It's very sweet, some of it, very sickly. Um, but I've, I've, I've dropped all those guards, and I play both of them now. So I play Tarangalila quite a lot, and Varega, I've played the whole cycle a lot in the last few years. Um, and why the change? Well, maturity, I guess, on my, my part. Um, Are you suggesting that you were immature before? Of course I was immature said, before, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's why you said yeah. no to it. Well, no, I mean, I think I didn't need it at that time. It just wasn't... I don't have to play all repertoire all the time. No? You know, and um, at that point, I didn't need... I just didn't need it. It wasn't what I was... What, what was necessary to my to my artistic body, so to speak. Um, but now I'm just loving every minute of it. But again, why did I realise you said maturity, but I want to dig a bit further. Why, what brought about that change of heart? Well, I think acceptance, you know, that, that you have to, there are some things you, you, you have to accept about, about music. And there are some composers where the gains, where there, is, there are some things that might put you off, but if you accept those, then the gains are really huge. You know, like by accepting Messiaen's sweetness, I get Tarangalila, you know, I get the extraordinary joy that's in that piece and the extraordinary virtuosity and the amazing colours and the, the, all, all that that bring, piece brings. But yes, I, have to, I have to... It's a suspension of disbelief kind of thing as well. Was it daunting? I mean, was there an element of it... It's all these pieces are daunting, a, yeah. They are. They're all daunting. I mean, they're practicing, practicing these pieces is a nightmare because, you know, if they were just big pieces, it would be one thing, but 10 movements in Tarangalila and 14 in... Or twelve, hang on. Yeah, twelve in um, in uh, De Canyon and twenty in Varega. That means that when you sit down there after real breakfast and you get to the third movement and you go, "Yay, I'm on the third movement," <laughs> you're like, "There's a hell of a long way to go." <laughs> right. Okay. So there's uh, a considerable commitment to it. I, yeah. I'm interested in understanding what at what point uh, you sort of committed to modern music and contemporary music. Committed to it in yes. a kind of marriage kind of a way. Well, that's my assumption. Yeah, I mean, I, I realise I've revealed far more about me in asking that question, but my assumption is that one does have to commit to it. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You don't but dance around it, sort of flirt with it. Do oh, you? Well, some people do, but uh, that's a career. That's a career choice, really. Let's not talk um, about them. Um, <laughs> I well, I I was very young, basically. I was a, an early starter, um, and it's 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 my parents' fault, really. I mean, my father had had a lot of 
bits and pieces in the house. So he had a book by Cage, a score of Stockhausen, a score of Sarabji, a okay. score of Bohuslav Schaefer, coloured, colourful Polish graphic scores. Lovely. And these are things he picked up in Blackwell's Music Shop in Oxford. But um, I didn't think they were musical, though. No, or they are. They were. Yeah, they are. Right, okay. yeah, Cage, the Cage, John Cage book is his book of essays, and then scores, musical scores. No, I mean your parents. Oh, yes, they are. Yeah, right, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They are, yeah. Um, why did you think they're not? I read it somewhere. Oh, maybe I didn't not true, read not it true. very. Maybe I no, didn't I mean, read and it very my, carefully. I didn't and my mum, my mum, although she had no materials to share with me, um, when I was listening to Il Canto Sospeso of Luigi Nono as a kid at home, she ran into the room and said, "I've sung this." And I was like, "What do you mean you've sung it? I sang it with Boulez in the proms." <laughs> Sounds like, oh really? <laughs> she was in the BBC Singers. Right. Quite so, a direct, almost aggressive, assertive conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it sounds. Yeah. That's certainly yeah. how you No, it was it. great. It was great. It was exciting for her, I think, that she recognised it. And um, it was certainly impressive for me. Um, but I, and, also, and also school, you know, I'm afraid I was blessed with great music teachers who, you know, I remember being played Contacta, Stockhausen Contacta LP at school when I was 12 or 11. And thinking, wow. You and had I think, a crazy music teacher too. Yeah, that was a crazy music teacher. And then there was... Then there was um, yeah, what happened after that? Then there was various influences, like there was a guy at school, my friend Ben Morrison. Hi, Ben. who's now <laughs> Professor of Philosophy at, uh, at Princeton, um, who, who introduced me to lots of things. He's not done very well, has he? No, really? he's not done very well. Um, he started with Lorio, I didn't. Oh, OK. Um, anyway, uh, he, uh, we, together we played Messian, uh, Vision de la Maine, and Boulez Structures Book 2 on my 16th birthday. So by the time I was 16, I was playing that stuff. I'd already Do you played. remember what, what effect it was having? I mean, did, oh, was it what effect it was having? Is it, it was excitement? Was it? Was it? Were you seeing it as cool? No, cool. No, no, I didn't. No, come on, I didn't. Well, I don't know. I no, mean, I, that's why no. I'm asking. You. No, I took drugs to be cool. Not okay, fine. Um, <laughs> did you? I'm sure you're not really telling me that. Let's just overlook that. Or so maybe you are. Yeah. So um, <laughs> uh, certainly, Boulez and Messiaen wasn't about being cool. It was just so exciting. I mean, the whole thing was just. It was like, my God, this exists. This is what life can be. It's just wonderful. Um, and I was composing then as well. And I studied when I was also when I was 16. I studied with Feldman at Dartington. Um, okay. I was I was looking at this for for a, for a text that someone had written, and it occurred to me I realised that a lot of these things happened within the space of eight weeks. So I went to I went to the I went to Bertwistle's Mask of Orbis world premiere, which was in May '86. On the fourth of June '86, which was my 16th birthday, I played Boulez Messiaen two piano concert, and then in July '86 I studied with Feldman for two weeks at Dartington. I mean. How quickly was that turned around? I mean, that was I mean, kind of extraordinary. To, yeah. and, to, and I always thought of that as, as being, you know, the substantial experience of my childhood that meant that there was no way I could escape contemporary music. And, did you and it all happened within what, eight weeks. Do you look at, did you recall at the time, this is like a classic sort of memory thing, but did you recall that being just quite every day and quite normal? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a school trip to the Mask of Orpheus. But studying with Feldman? Studying with Feldman was an accident because... I went there to study with Pellemutter, but I only brought Schubert, and he only wanted to teach Ravel. So the person running the class said, no, Mr. Pellemutter won't hear your Schubert, he only wants to hear your Ravel, and I had no Ravel, so that was that. Um, and then I just looked around on the list, and I saw Feldman's oh, name, and I thought, oh, I'll go and study him. with him. Yeah. Did you know about him before you decided? I knew the name, I knew the name. Right. I didn't really know, I think I knew actually no music by him at that point. But I'd written already, I was composing since I was 11, so... Um, 
so basically by the time I got to university I was kind of really already pumped up full of ideas and well not I not great brilliant original ideas please don't misunderstand me um, but I was pumped full of of music by so many different people and interests and 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 hungers you know were you good at sport no of course not were you made a prefect uh, I think I was actually. Yeah. Wow, weren't you? <laughs> I hate that. Uh, you must have gone to a really good school <laughs> and must have been really appreciated for your musical talent. Well, I did go to. Yeah, let's not talk about school. I mean, it's it's some. I, yeah, I mean, because because you know when sometimes you talk, you tell, tell, I tell this kind of stuff, and someone once said to me, "Oh, so it was all just nepotism then?" But I mean, okay. that's just. Okay. Well, we've, we've in a very indirect way we've covered that. Then. Yeah. Um, I've also been listening today to "In Seven Days." Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you recorded with the Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. 2011, 2010. I believe you. <laughs> uh, which Thomas Addis wrote for you? Is that right? Yeah, kind of. It's a little bit you more complicated than that. Yeah, I premiered it. it. Yeah. I, and I did it many times with him. Um, no, what actually happened with that piece was that um, Tom wrote it for himself, or wanted to write it for himself. He started writing it for himself. And, uh, and then very quickly, so I think I had the first, already when he'd written two movements, he realised that it was just as hard to conduct as it was to play, and that he would need to conduct it. So I think by the time he'd written two movements or so, he decided that he was going to conduct it, and then he asked me if I would play it. So after that point, it was, it was being written for me, but it wasn't like a grand gesture no, kind no, of thing. Okay. Um, and then we did it, I think we did it together maybe 20 times, um, which was, you know, huge pleasure and big fun for both of us. Um, what do you like about it? And then I'll tell you what I like about it. What do I like about it? Well, I'm very... Oh, gosh, what do I like about it? Is that a terrible question to No, it's not a terrible it. question, but as, it's actually a, a quite, a, quite a complicated piece because there's so many different things in it. I love I love his 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 boldness in in writing rhythms as he calls them, meaning rhythms that are very unusual, and which um, are quite difficult to handle, but very expressive. You know, like this very this very strange limping rhythm or, or jumping rhythm that he uses, where 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 I, I I'm just trying to avoid a technical description of it. But you can um, use a technical. Well, I it's like inco- technical it's basically there's he uses always very often incomplete irrationals. So there are. There's a triplet where you where you stop the tripletness after the second one, then you go back into the normal duplet tempo. But that means that the bar is incomplete. I bet you love that. I no, mean, I don't know I you like very the, well, but I bet you. Well, I, I love. Yeah, I do love it. I do love it. Well, you know me a little bit. Um, <laughs> Based I do, on what you told me already. <laughs> I do love it. I do love it. But uh, but it's an expressive expressive tool. It's not a technical game. You know. And what is it expressing? Well, in that piece, for example, it can often be expressing seven because everything in that piece is sevens, seven movements. The tempo is 77. There are seven beats in the bar. Um, and then if you have seven triplets, then you end up with an incomplete... You end up running out of... You know, it's not six or nine, so you end up then... I was about to start, Sorry, my mind was going, what's so important about seven? What's so important about seven? And then I remember the title. Now yes, I, and yeah, creation. I'm thinking about my Not birthday. just the title, but creation. I'm thinking about my birthday. <laughs> Sorry, carry but there's, and there's, but there's also he's also got this because he's a you know great pianist himself. He's got this this real grasp of um, of really pianistic piano writing, pianistic piano writing. Um, <laughs> you know, good. where with this going back to what we were talking about with the Messiaen from from the forties, this Lystian gesture of, of of virtuosic piano music. So he make he makes virtuosic piano music sound very well, 
but he uses that as a thing. He doesn't. He's not. It's not a stylistic. It's not a stylistic game. It's a thing. I think you know when he's doing a movement which is virtuosic piano. It's a. It's an. It's 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 a theme in a way. Um, and then the fugue, for example, as well. The sixth move, sixth movement is the piano fugue is 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 amazing. Just amazingly original and virtuosic and quirky and weird and and the whole thing is so beautifully put together. I mean, it's. It's a very strange piece, I think. Actually, I mean, like for example, you know that the order of the days is the wrong. Is wrong. Oh, he, yes, reor- he reorganized creation. Yes, he did. And there's yes, things like yes, that about did, it, actually. which you, no, really you know, like and it. there are things about the, the the music that are that are similarly strange. That it, it covers, you know, you can jump in after in five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and really not think that you're in the same piece because, the stylistically, he's using so many different. Um, he's using so many different techniques and textures and, and stylistic. Not references, but the kind of objects. It doesn't feel. Um, I feel engaged with it. I yeah. feel as though I can engage with it as a listener, in a way that some other contemporary music I find rather challenging to engage with. That's not so that I don't that I don't like that. It's just that it's it's more immediate. Its effect on a first listen is more immediate. So to me, there's something about uh, Anderson's storytelling and the language that he uses. Uh, I don't know whether I, I that's right at the the, the the boundary of my experience boundary of my experience really. I don't really know how else to describe it but there is something quite immediate about that yeah I mean I think you have to say first of all he's an amazing technician he's an amazing composer just from the point of view of, of achieving what he aims to and he aims these days to achieve storytelling in a certain way um and he does that fantastically well. I think the piano concerto, the new piano concerto, is even better than in Seven Days. Um, and I think that's actually because it's not storytelling in the same way. It's about music. It's about the instrument and about the, 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 the genre. But not in, in, I mean, I just mean it's, it's, it's just real, a real piano concerto. Three movements and enough space to do what he needs to do. And, it's, and the piano writing is really unique feels like piano writing that he's written for himself in a certain way. Have you played that already? Not yet, no. Someone just asked me to do it, so I'm looking forward to So does that mean that you've started working on it? No, no, I, they haven't even sent me the part yet, the bastards. But um, <laughs> they, 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 I've got the score, but... Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. maybe that's something you can... No, there's no hurry. It's a couple oh. of years away. But, oh, I see. But, yeah, right. um, but uh, you know, his Tom's... If you look through Tom's piano music through his whole career... It, he doesn't hasn't written very much. He once said to me that his first piano, his first big piano piece, um, can't remember the title off the top of my head because I'm tired. Um, took him as long to write as his first opera. Wow! And um, does he know why? Did he tell you why? I'm just the, scra- scraping the title out of the back of my head. While you do that, I'm going to mop my brow. Um, why? Well, because the piano is a really difficult instrument. And particularly for a pianist, I think, you know. Um, and so he writes. He has written, and now he's started to get a bit more relaxed with it, I think. But in the first 20 years of his career, he was writing only very occasional piano pieces um, because they were a huge effort for him. And um, and as a result, each one is very, very different. Uh, it's a very different situation from someone who feels very relaxed with the instrument and and just produces piano music that's all the same, you know. There are people who do that as well. Um, something that I get quite worked up about when I write about classical music is uh, the sort of constant fear that marketers and artistic directors have 
that classical music needs to um, engage to a younger audience in case it dies. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. I'm not asking you to comment on that necessarily. But um, I wonder, I wonder how your view is different given the the material that you play, which is always going to appeal to a niche audience. I um, put it to you. <laughs> he said well, very humbly and respectfully. Yeah. No. I mean the. Depends what you call niche, really. I mean, the niche audience in some countries is a hell of a lot bigger than in others. Right. Um, okay. Not mentioning any names, Germany. <coughs> okay. Um, niche, but, but passionate. Niche, but passionate. No, but um, I mean, to I you, mean, does I think that stuff no, 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 no. The the important answer, the, rather than the flippant answer, the important answer is um, it doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever because it can't. I mean, what can I do? I'm not. I'm not in. I'm not aiming to make money out of what I do. Um, it's a, a handy, handy um, side side product, but um, I'm not aiming to make m- more money or enough money or anything like that. I'm just, or any money, I'm just doing the work that I think is important. And in that respect, um, yeah, I just don't care. Which is the I intrinsic just, motivation. That yeah, the motivation for what I do is is music and art and and aesthetics and and the relationship. Most importantly, I think the relationship between all those in the world and my life. You know my understanding of the world so when I get passionate about something I want to do it because it's musically or, or politically important to me in a certain way do you think other artists see it the same way I bloody I'm well hope asking, so I don't, I'm not asking for names I'm no I hope so I really hope so is it your sense when you talk to other artists that that is the case oh yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. The artists that I like and that I work with, it's definitely that's the case I mean you ask someone like Bert Russell the same question he'll say oh don't give a bloody <laughs> in, a, in an extremely northern way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think, what's the, think about the alternative. Yeah, it really worries me that, that the audience doesn't like what I really want to do, so I do something else. Well, I'm just I posing mean, the question. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, giving yeah. you, and I'm giving yes. you the, I'm giving you uh, the, the answer. I mean, it's, it's. It would be the, a, a ridiculous but there are, stance to, to take. But. It is a ridiculous stance, but there are people who, there are people. I mean, particularly, I think, I've heard that from students who are trying to earn money who would say, um, oh, I can't play that because no one will want to book it. No one wanted me to book me. Your heart, you know, does that make your heart sink? No, you it just that? makes me shout at them. Okay, right. That's, <laughs> that's your strategy. That's your approach. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> intimidate um, them. <laughs> no, not intimidate them, but make it very, very, very clear to them that's, not how, that that's in the long run not going, to make them, not going to make them be an artist. And do they shift their view or do they stop? Well, I don't think they ever totally shift their view. Um, I think some people are always going to be nervous of programming music that's not going to bring in an audience. But I think you just have to play, play what you really are committed to and do it in a committed manner. And, and if the world accepts it, then good. And if not, then you move on to the next thing. I mean, it's nothing else you can do. Uh, what is the promise to you? The promise how, to me? Yeah, how is it important for you as an artist? Well, the proms, well, let's just start with... Um, how important the proms are to everyone, all people who are music lovers in the UK. I mean, it's just a huge thing. It's, it's you know, people, people in all countries, but a lot in the UK at the moment because of Brexit, say how unique the excellence of certain things in the UK is. And it's very often just bluster. But I think about the proms, it's actually true. I think they're a very... They're, I can't think of another festival. There might be something in New York, but I very much doubt it. Not, not with purely concert stuff. A festival that's as big, basically, and it's wide-ranging, you know, um, and that's just amazing. And thank God the BBC hasn't axed it yet. Um, 
I can't imagine that they would ever that they ever would that they could. Yeah, but we've said that about so many things in the last fifty years that have got axed. So in the world, it's one of the one of a handful of potent brands that they still have. Yeah, all the more reason to axe it. <laughs> okay. Sorry, <laughs> not that I'm a cynic or anything. Um, no, but um, to go back to to go back to so so that's um, the generally it's it's we've just both you know made it clear that it's very very important. Um, and for me, you know, I can remember. This gets really name droppy. I'm sorry, it's but fine. I it's okay. sang in the no proms. No one really listens to this. <laughs> I sang in the proms um, when I was 12 in the boys' choir in the St. Luke Passion of Penderecki, and Penderecki was conducting, and it was televised. So I sang in the proms when I was 12 already. Um, I'd already been in the festival hall with Rattle doing the War Requiem. Um, so uh, yeah, so in there was the mid 80s in 82, yeah, right. 82, 83. And um, so the proms started for me with, with, you know, singing in them, actually. And then taping them. No, I shouldn't yes. admit that, should I? Listening to them Why on the radio. Why would you admit that? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, listening to them, you know, and I can remember so many wonderful, wonderful concerts from the proms that I listened to on the radio and learned so much from. And then I, I, I started playing in them. I played in them once, a little bit in the 90s. And then in 2005, I played actually, or 2004 maybe, Messiaen Trois Petites Liturgies. Actually, the first piece I played, big solo piece I played in the proms was a Messiaen piece. And that was 2005? Yeah, 2005. Four, four or five or something, something like that. Um, and uh, since then, there have been, you know, a couple of other outings and uh, every couple of years. So having, and it's, made that, having made that journey, though, from 12-year-old to playing the Messiaen in 2005, what was the... What was that experience like shortly before you played? Was it was a sort of a oh my god I can't believe I'm doing this or ah oh, great? I'm no, I, I was aware of the fact I was standing on the same stage as I had been before. Hmm. It was that simple really. Um, and I think as a child, you know, you you uh, we took it very very seriously. We were made to take it very very seriously because it was very important. So the choir, our choir master Francis Greer trained us. You know, we we did for example we had to sing unaccompanied entries there's one big where, where Jesus Christ dies I think on the cross uh, when he takes his last breath um, the boy choir sings a serial a seemed serial at the time little phrase on its own with absolutely no accompaniment and no and a big pause before it big rest before it so we were trained to stand there and remember a pitch for like five minutes wow and then wow. come in and I remember being trained very very seriously um we didn't have to sing it from memory, but 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 we end, you know you end up sing, singing that kind of thing from memory anyway. Um, but I remember particularly the thing of tra- being trained to hold pitches in your head, whatever else is happening, for a long time, and then be able to come in beautifully and how unaccompanied. Did you do that? Well, is it just I, about you just, you know, trial and error? How you do it, everything when you're a kid, you just do it, or or, or you don't, you know. Um, and we we were we were the right, you know, it was a it was Christchurch Cathedral Choir and. Um, they, they, you know, it was a good choir, and we were trained to do it. So I remember taking it, the, my point about saying all that is that we, 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 when we stood on the stage there, it wasn't like, oh, we're having fun here. It was like, <laughs> right. am I going to remember that note for five minutes? Yes. You know, um, and, and things like that. We took it very, very seriously because that's the so position then, you were put in. So presumably then, because that was your initial experience of it, then every subsequent experience was... In the prompt. It's, it's, it's just the prompt. It's just a st- well, no, it's just a no, no, no. There's no just about uh, just about it. There's, I think, I mean, like if you take the QEH for example, which we're standing in. I, I came to the QEH 
to go to concerts from about 1985 and I first was on stage in about 1996 or something and when I come here and I go on the stage I don't think oh it's just the QEH I think I'm glad it's the QEH because I know where the problems are and where the good things are and then I know who to ask and I can do my job you know it's there's no there's no feeling fancy or feeling you know like like um, you know oh I'm at home darling I'm on the stage of the QEH <laughs> no, no, no and I wasn't suggesting that for a moment but I do remember I remember going to concerts at the Barbican uh and seeing the LSO as a teenager, and then for some reason our county youth orchestra man uh, got the youth orchestra percussion section to take part in an LSO gig or something. It was Britain's Children's Crusade, and mm. I participated in that. And I remember just being completely. So you played with the LSO. Technically, I mean, yeah. I am in the program with the LSO, Great. but I'm not listed as part of the LSO. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, but I remember thinking, bloody hell. Um, but maybe that's why I'm not a uh, highly successful, highly regarded pianist, and you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's always the blo- I mean, the bloody hell moment comes back again and again. But it's it's the the joy and excitement of doing what we do is is comes from many different sources, you know. And the, the bloody hell moment is for me is nowadays. It's not when I walk on stage in the hall. I mean, I remember, for example, walking on stage in the Sydney Opera House for the first time, where I played Ligeti Ganekshato. That was quite. A, that was quite. I was like, yeah, this is the Sydney Opera House. It's really, really big, <laughs> and that's really nice. And then I went to choose my pianos, and they were really good, and that was choose fine. Choose your pianos. Yeah. How many did you choose? Three. Right. Choose from three. Yes. Choose my piano, yeah. um, and uh, and then I and I just went on to do the job. But the moment of oh my god comes after the last downbeat, after the end of the piece, before the audience claps, because then you've you've done your job uh, on a professional level, and you've you've either achieved or not achieved or you feel good or not good about what's happened and those moments sometimes I just have to not stop myself crying you know because you get to the end of a really big piece that you've been working on or thinking about for years often um, and it's just a huge relief and huge joy that you've been a- allowed to do it and able to do it and and you know I look at the conductor and if it went well I'm really happy that he's there or she's there as well and that's the, that's the oh god moment nowadays not standing on the stage at the first rehearsal you describe it in a way that makes me think that it's, there's this that it's almost a magical moment which can only last for a split second oh yeah do it, you ever it, want it to last for longer or no is I want to go for my the, beer <laughs> part, of the part of the joy is, is that it will that, that moment will be over quickly yeah I mean it's it can it, it just like can't savour yeah there's some yeah I mean you savour it and I can still think about those moments now I can still savor them now I, I remember many of those moments very specific moments from specific collaborations and specific pieces and specific concerts and also problems you know as well but um, like for example I'll give you another concrete example I played a recital in the Mozartzaal in Vienna in the concert house and I knew that it was a good hall an important hall beautiful hall wonderful hall all this and I went there and I did my rehearsal and then I went backstage and dumped my stuff in my dressing room and I saw all these posters and there were all the posters from the Society for Private Musical Performances of Schoenberg where Edward Steuermann was giving all the first performances of Schoenberg, Berg, Webern, Rager as well and Debussy Etudes were played in these concerts in that hall. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and I suddenly realised where I was, you know, and, and that actually made... And the, the other thing about that concert 
to the that other thing in the equation was there was no there was no radio, so I was very relaxed, no radio and pieces I knew. Composers were all there, friends. It was sold out. The audience was all was totally silent, and that was one of the high points of my life because you, I felt like I was really in in in. Yes, a kind of not exactly a hallowed space. That sounds so poncy and pretentious. It's okay, but, it's all right. but, it's qualified. but a place where a place where you know a lot of very important things have happened uh, musically, and I was able to contribute to that. And the audience was was wonderful, and that was that was a big joy. And I can savor that. I can savor that now always. And when I go back there, I always remember. I played the Bessio on the Van Ricard there, for example. That was another wonderful experience. But it was then already a different experience because I'd already been there once. Uh, what, what impact does it radio have on you then? I mean, my assumption is that I, I realise that you're aware that the microphones are there, but you just well, sort of blank them out and you just get on with Yeah, it. no, I mean, d- that's true, I do. And it's not that it makes any difference, really, but it's just, I think there was an added relaxation of realising that there was no, no microphone and um, all the friends were there and all the, all the, all the composers were there, I mean. Um, so there was just this feeling of playing for people, you know, for the people that I could see. It's the thing about the radio is you can't see your audience anymore, and that's kind of weird. Isn't that lovely? No, I mean, I like, for example, I played... I, I played. not see people listening. No, I, like, I, want, I want a video screen with all the people, all the 200 people listening to Radio 3. Right, right, <laughs> you want proof. <laughs> um, You're a questioning individual. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, no, for example, um, I played the Beat Führer Piano Concerto with the Philharmonia in the Music of Today series last year. And the, the lights were on. It was like sex with the lights on. Um, uh, the lights were on in the festival hall, and I could see the audience quite a lot. And I could see Andrew Karofsky. Do you remember Andrew Karofsky, who used to be head of new music, head of contemporary music at the BBC, and was responsible for many, many very important and wonderful things? Hello, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I don't think he listens uh, to this. <laughs> and, um, quite and I could see him clapping and smiling at the end, and I just thought, this is really. I have played this piece for that man and for all these other people, many of whom I know, and that's really a different feeling from playing the piece for a microphone, even if I know that the same people are sitting at home. Yes. Because they're probably sitting at home cooking spaghetti or sitting at home reading the paper or actually arguing with their partners or, you know. Okay. There's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of images there that I didn't yeah, expect sorry. you to describe. Sorry. Spaghetti, arguing and reading the paper. Um, You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.